Thank you, Lisa, for that ministry in music. Paul is coming to the end of the letter to the Corinthians, and we are coming to a close of our study as well. Lord willing, we'll have one more message from the uh, book of 2 Corinthians, and then we will have concluded our, our study. Paul closes with a hope and a somewhat desperate plea that when he comes, the people will have been repentant. But if not, he is prepared to administer church discipline. Key verse is 2 Corinthians 13.10. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, in order that when present I may not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. So Paul is hoping that in writing the epistle to the Corinthians that they will ultimately and finally repent. That is certainly his desire. He doesn't want to have to deal harshly with them. He doesn't want to have to be overly critical when he comes. For he doesn't want to tear down, but he wants to build up. He wants to encourage. He wants to establish. But unfortunately, there is this group within Corinth that is just belligerent and totally unwilling to repent. So, in light of that belligerence, Paul closes with some exhortations for their repentance. So, the theme this morning is Paul's closing exhortations regarding repentance. The first, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to repent so that he will not have to administer church discipline. In 2 Corinthians 13.2, he states, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, now these words, I will not spare anyone. I will not spare anyone. There are two reasons in the text as to why the Corinthians might have thought that they will be spared Paul's discipline when he comes. Two reasons why they may have been calling Paul's bluff, as it were. That they really didn't think that he was going to administer church discipline. The first reason is because of the long-suffering nature with which Paul had dealt with the Corinthians. The long-suffering nature with which Paul had dealt with the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, he says, This is the third time I am coming to you. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Paul had made two previous visits. The first visit is well detailed. It is given to us in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. For the sake of time this morning, we'll not turn to that passage and look at it, but that is the visit in which the church was founded at Corinth. It was a visit that lasted over a year and a half. One of the longest stays of the Apostle Paul anywhere in his ministry to the churches. Been there a year and a half. Many had come to faith. Others had been very unrepentant and uh, diligent, uh, excuse me, belligerent to deal with. 
And as a result, there was a lot of persecution that Paul went through at Corinth. And Paul acted with gentleness in dealing with the Corinthians and once even retreated rather than force a showdown. Paul talked about how he had treated them with meekness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The second visit is not recorded for us in the scriptures. But it says that in verse 2, I previously said that when present the second time. After this second visit and the warnings that the Apostle Paul made, they continued in a state of unrepentance. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 1.23. How this epistle opens compared with how it ends. In 2 Corinthians 1.23 it says, But I call God as witness to my soul. Strong language. May God hold me accountable if what I'm about to say isn't true. I call God to my witness, to my soul, that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Paul says, I wanted to spare you. Now, at the end of the book, he says, I'm not going to spare anybody. But he begins by saying, I wanted to spare you. And the reason that I haven't come to Corinth is out of that desire to spare you. Then he goes on to say, in verse 24 of chapter 1, Not that we lord it over your faith, but our work is with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad, but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul says, I wrote in tears, I wrote in anguish, I wrote in sorrow, seeking your repentance. I hated to have to say these things to you. It hurt me to the quick. And I put off, I postponed coming to you because I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be tragic. I knew it was going to be devastating. And so I haven't come to you because I didn't want to have to confront you face to face about these issues. A lot of time had passed. More letters were written. Emissaries were sent. And there was still an element of the church that was unrepentant and continued in their defiance of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Paul writes this last letter and says, I'm coming and I want you to know when I come, I won't spare anyone. Same word that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He wanted to spare them. But now was the time where the sin had to be dealt with. Paul will not spare anyone 
It includes, as we would expect, those who are unrepentant in verse 2. I'm back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 2 says, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past. Obviously, those that have sinned, it's a perfect tense, not just a sin that was committed in the past, but a sin that was done in the past and continues into the present. People that were habitually sinning, people that he had addressed time and time again, people who had been rebuked and ignored that rebuke, warned and remained in an unrepentant state. He says, I'm going to come and I'm not going to spare you. But notice it says, and to all the rest as well. All the rest as well. Who are the rest? And what is he, what is he communicating to them? Well, I think the rest includes two ideas. First, he wants the church to know, everyone know, that this is ultimately going to be dealt with. A lot of people are, are wondering what in the world is going on here. Why is this being tolerated? And he's communicating to them the fact that the time is coming. It will be dealt with. But I think all the rest includes a second group. And that is the church leaders who had done nothing about the situation. They bore a responsibility. They bore a measure of guilt in this whole situation. That they had not confronted the issue. Paul had written earlier in 1 Corinthians about a situation that was so bizarre that a man was having a sexual relationship with his own mother. And Paul writes to the church and says two things to them. First, that people are acting in a way that even the heathen wouldn't act. So even the Gentiles wouldn't put up with that kind of behavior. So bizarre to think that in the church that this would be going on. And then secondly, he says, and the church is arrogant. They're proud. They view themselves as extremely tolerant. They view themselves as extremely loving. They're patting themselves on the back in the way in which they are putting up with condoning, welcoming this kind of behavior in the church. Namely, that a man would have a sexual relationship with his own mother. And Paul is writing not only to the man that it is unacceptable, he's writing to the church that it's unacceptable. And so Paul says, when I come, I'm going to come and I'm going to address the unrepentant and the rest as well. He's going to deal with the entire situation. And he assures them that he will deal with the situation appropriately. He will deal with the situation appropriately. Notice verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Evidently, Paul is going to have some kind of a trial that's going to take place when he comes. And he says every, every fact is going to be established. We're not going to, we are not going to respond to rumor or to gossip. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps you, there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, 
disturbances. That's what he expects to find when he arrives. Not, Not too pleasant a situation to walk into by any means. And he assumes that when he gets there, there's going to be gossip that people have talked about. There's all these things going on in the church. Everybody knows it. Everybody's been talking about it. Reputations have been slandered. He knows all of this. He knows that people have been jealous. He knows that people have gotten angry. He knows that he's walking into a hornet's nest. And he says to them, to reassure them, I'm not going to deal with the gossip. I'm not going to deal with the rumor. I'm not going to deal with all of the, the mess in the sense that he is going to give credence to it. He said, we're going to deal this factually. We're going to take witnesses. We're going to examine. We're going to get to the truth. And we're going to address the whole mess when it comes. That was the intent. And Paul is pleading with them that he doesn't have to deal with that when he comes. That instead they would repent, seek God's forgiveness, and transform their lives through the power of the gospel. Application. Paul devoted himself to the Corinthian church more than to any other church. Paul had stayed longer, written more letters, sent more emissaries. There is no New Testament church that Paul devoted his time and ministry to than the church at Corinth. Lesson Sometimes that the people that we invest our lives in the most, our resources, our times, our prayers, appreciate it the least. We need to understand that. That many times the people that we work with the most in trying to bring them to a place of repentance actually appreciate it the least. Don't see it as love. Don't see it as concern. Don't welcome it in their lives. That's what Paul is dealing with the people at Corinth. Second lesson is that in the life of the church, we need to realize that oftentimes, oftentimes, the greatest amount of energy and effort is spent on those who are unrepentant and unattentive to the things of God. Why do I say that? Because of the the people in the church who are seeking to live a a Christ-honoring and godly life, oftentimes they can feel ignored. Oftentimes they can feel neglected. Because that's not where the focus is. That's not where the time is being spent. Those are not the people that are being sought out and encouraged because they're doing the right thing. And these handful of people that are creating all the problems are getting all the attention and all the resources and all the time. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you are walking with the Lord, I commend you for your faithfulness uh, to the gospel and to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. But the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, here it's the unrepentant gets the attention because there's such a desire to see such people walk with the Lord. 
The second reason is the Corinthians may have thought that Paul would not really discipline when he comes is the perceived weakness the Apostle Paul had displayed in not disciplining them in the past. They had viewed Paul as weak and did not think that he was actually speaking for Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.3 Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me. We had that long section where Paul was demonstrating his true apostleship and comparing himself to the false apostles. And you will remember that in that comparison, he refers to the false apostles and talks about how these false apostles even struck the people. Hit them in the face. Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Well, there were some who admired that kind of behavior. Thought that that's how it ought to be dealt with. There are more people that ought to get hit. They're thinking. Paul didn't strike anybody. And they viewed, some did, that as weakness on the part of the Apostle Paul. Viewed it as weakness. Whereas, it was not weakness. Christ himself was long-suffering with sinners and gave his life for them, which was perceived by others as a weakness. Notice verse 3. Since you are seeking proof for Christ who speaks in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Now, he uses Christ as the example. Verse 4. For indeed... He was crucified because of weakness. Crucified because of weakness. That was the perception. That was the perception that Christ was weak. The unrepentant had jeered at Jesus hanging on the cross. They saw them as, themselves as powerful. They saw themselves as determinative. They saw themselves as having put Jesus Christ on the cross. And they jeered, and they mocked, and they taunted, and they said with scorn things like, If you're the Christ, come down from there. Prove yourself that you are strong. Prove yourself that you are the Son of God. Let's see this strength. Let's see this power. Come down from the cross. And he hung there. More taunts. More jeering. You're able to save others. Save yourself. And he hung there. Crucified in weakness. Thinking that he was weak. Thinking that he could do nothing about it. Thinking that he was simply overpowered by his enemies. However, his resurrection demonstrates that Christ did not die out of weakness. Verse 4. For he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. He wasn't weak. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. And three days later, he came forth from the grave and he showed his mighty power. Verse 4, Paul makes the analogy, for we are also are weak in him. We are weak in Him. Well, that, that seems like a strange statement. In Him, we are weak. You would think it would say, in Him we are strong. 
But Paul is saying that we are acting as Jesus acted. He was long-suffering. He was patient. He put up with the taunts. He put up with the jeers. He put up with the rebellion. And so have we. We have put up with the slander. We have been putting up with the accusations. We have been long-suffering towards sin, even as Jesus was long-suffering because of sin. And then, Paul demonstrates, though, that when he comes, he will not act in weakness at the end of verse 4, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. You're going to see God's power displayed. You are going to see what is going to take place. Not weakness, but strength. There is this incredible thought today that when Jesus Christ returns, that he's not really going to judge. He's not really going to condemn. He's not really going to find fault. There is no hell. There is no separation from God for all eternity. There is this idea that not so much that God is weak, but that God is so loving and God is so kind And God is so gracious that he could never, ever do such a thing as to send a person to hell. Less than one-third of evangelicals believe in hell. That's an incredible statistic. Less than one-third of professing evangelicals believe in hell. Their concept of God is He is too loving. He is too kind. He is going to spare. Is it any wonder that the Corinthians thought that Paul would spare when he comes? Because the concept is certainly God is going to spare. God is going to spare. Paul's not going to spare. And the reason he doesn't spare is because he wants to prepare the Corinthians for the day of judgment. When they're going to have to stand before a God who doesn't spare. As I said, less than one-third professing evangelicals believe in a literal hell. How this morning can I prove to you that there's a hell? That judgment is coming.
But there is a day of reckoning. But God has been long-suffering. God has given warning after warning. God has tolerated time and time again the sinful condition of mankind, even as Paul was long-suffering towards the Corinthians, and time and time and time again. But how do we know that when Christ comes, even as when Paul came, when Christ comes, that there really is going to be judgment. And there's going to be a time of accountability before him. How do we know that to be true? I say to you, Romans says, He that spared not his own son. Paul says, I won't spare anyone. God did not even spare his son. When Christ died for the sins of those that would believe in him, God's wrath was poured out on his son in totality. He did not spare him one iota. He went through it all. For me, the proof of hell is the reality of the cross. Why in the world would God ever pour out His wrath on His own Son hanging upon a tree? Why would He go through that? Why would He suffer that? Why would He experience that? Why would He provide that? if there weren't something horrific to spare us from. And that horrific something is a Christless eternity that is experienced in hell. And so, Paul encourages the Corinthians in verse 5, test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith. For the sake of time, I'm just going to deal with this one point this morning uh, of this sermon. We're going to stop here. But here is the exhortation based on the first point. And that is test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Paul is writing to a group of people that are in the church. Living very unrepentant, very unholy lives. And Paul's encouragement to them is... You know, you need to stop and ask yourself the question. Are you really born again? Are you really saved? And then he goes on and talks about the transformation that goes along with a person who is truly born again. Their unrepentant lifestyle calls into question the transforming work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person is born again. And so he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. 
Examine yourself. That's wonderful advice for someone who isn't walking with the Lord. We don't know. Paul isn't ready to say who is born again, who is we, we we don't know. We don't know. My brother made a profession of faith when he was about ten years old. But that profession of faith never manifested itself in what I saw as his powerful ways. Now he's nine years older than I, so my brother was older than, uh, than I, and I don't know all of his early life, but I can remember as a teenager going to church and every Sunday my brother would be barking at my parents and complaining about going to church and didn't want to be there and all this kind of stuff. And I'd sit in the back seat and listen to this and wonder why doesn't he just shut up and, and just go? But all those things. Went all the way to college, took courses and Questioned the miracles of God, questioned the deity of Christ, and all those things. And I remember my mother always dealt with my brother and said, you know, you made a profession of faith when you were 10 years old. You know the Lord Jesus, your Savior. You shouldn't think this way. You shouldn't act this way. I always dealt with my brother as, you need to get saved. I don't think that profession of faith was genuine. I don't see any real commitment in your life. Who was right? I don't know. I don't know. I do know that today my brother makes a very legitimate profession of faith for which I am very, very thankful for. But the assurance of our salvation is not a moment in time in which we have said something. The assurance of our salvation is the transformation of life to see the power of God at work within us. And so I, I say to you this morning, and I don't know everybody's individual life that's here this morning and so on, and, but you know a reality that you are born again. I don't want to create doubts where they don't exist. Where they shouldn't exist. We're talking about people in this passage that are living in habitual sin who have been rebuked time and time and time again, are unwilling to repent, are unwilling to confess it, stand in opposition, stand in defiance to Paul and to his ministry. And Paul says, I, you better stop and question whether or not you are really in the faith. We need to realize that there are times that there are people who are associated with the church who aren't really born again. And those people don't repent. Those people don't come to a place of welcoming and receiving the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And does your life reflect that knowledge? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would lead us and direct us and help us, O oh God. But we certainly don't want to uh, 
create doubt in the hearts of tender hearts who love you and are always very introspective and understand that there are things that you're displeased with. Lord, none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. None of us measure up. None of us always desire what is holy and just and right. None of us are perfect. Lord, reassure your people that they belong unto you and you love them and you care for them. But there are the unrepentant. There are the unregenerate. There are those that, that sin and feel no remorse. Sin and feel no guilt. Sin and have no sense of longing to be freed or of disappointing you or saddening you. Lord, there are a people, for whatever reason, that associate themselves with Christians who simply get angered at what your word teaches and continue on in that unrepentant state. Oh Lord, for them, may this be a day in which they bow the knee and they profess faith in Jesus Christ in a true saving way in which they seek forgiveness for their sins to enjoy peace with you. And Lord, as we reflect on the reality of the cross, may it put to rest once and for all the question as to whether or not you in your holy justice and your holy goodness would ever pour out your wrath on an individual. For we've seen it in Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.